This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. Hi, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the backseat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. As the number one audio company, iHeartMedia gives you access to all. Every audience, live conversations, trusted influencers, and the insights and data you need to grow. iHeartMedia is your access company. Go to iHeartResults.com for more. Welcome to Business on the Brink, a production from iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. 100 years ago, a group of legends joined forces to face off against a common foe. With their powers combined, they set out on a quest to bring their vision to the silver screen. They had no way of knowing that their artist-centric philosophy would one day endanger the entire company. And because of one feature film spiraling out of control, it looked like it was curtains for the whole project. This is United Artists on the Brink. Hey, everybody. I'm Jonathan Strickland. And I'm Ariel Kasten. I'm sorry you all had to listen to my poor excuse for a trailer voice there. I didn't go full on in a world either. Today's episode comes to us courtesy of a listener suggestion. Yeah. Thanks, LBL Luke on Twitter. Yep. So uh, Luke specifically wanted us to talk about United Artists and Heaven's Gate, which initially gave us some cause of concern because we thought it was two different suggestions yes. and we were thinking Heaven's Gate, the cult. And, and that's a little he- bit edgy for us yeah, there. It's a little beyond the brink. I mean, that's a totally different brink. The the Heaven's Gate that Luke was talking about was, of course, a famous film and we will talk about it because as it turns out, it plays a very important part in United Artists' history. But speaking of history, Ariel, t- tell us about how this company came into being. All right. So United Artists, or rather the United Artists Corporation, was started in 1919 by Charlie Chaplin, along with a couple other famous people, Mary Pickford and Douglas Fairbanks, and a few others who quickly dropped out after the founding. And it was started over financial and artistic disputes between the actors and the studios and distributors. 
at this time, the film industry model of distribution was undergoing major changes, and the actors felt like they had to uh, really take a step up to look out for themselves, for the wages they were making, and and for the product they were putting out. Yeah, as it turns out, this was uh, in the very early days of the movie industry when things were still pretty Wild West in more ways than one. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, Hollywood was really the Wild West at this point. So part of the issue was that distribution was largely regional. You know, you didn't have like national distributors for films. So you had to deal with lots of different entities. And it seemed like everybody was being real cagey about how much money a film was making. And then the people who were actually responsible for making the movie never seemed to get the full amount that they felt they were owed. Uh, One of the people that Ariel was alluding to that was part of the founding but who later dropped out of United Artists was D.W. Griffith, who his famous Birth of a Nation film was seen by practically every United States adult there Mm -hmm. was. And yet, whenever it came time to collect on the profits, while Griffith got rich from that film, he he said, yeah, but this is like a fraction of what I'm owed. Yeah, and he wasn't the only one. Actually, a bunch of the actors who founded United Arts were doing a war bonds tour Mm -hmm. and started discussing it and realizing they were all having the same problem. Yeah, so it was really like a a lack of transparency, and they felt they had a lack of control. So this was their attempt to, let's set out to make our own studio so that we can have better control over what is happening. There's there's one instance, and and then we'll move on. There's one instance where Charlie Chaplin was working on a film, and he asked for a bigger budget for it to accomplish his goal because, you know, he produced a lot of his own movies. Mm -hmm. And uh, they said no. And he said, I thought I had full artistic control over this movie. Why are you telling me no? Yeah. It's because they're the ones who are cutting the checks. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, uh, you know, Chaplin would have kind of a a rocky history with United Artists as well because it would take a while before he would start actually releasing films under Mm -hmm. the United Artists banner. He was still making films for other studios as well. And that was part of the philosophy of United Artists. They didn't want to lock anyone in. Um, and a lot of the the source material we read ends up crediting Mary Pickford as being really the genius behind mm-hmm. United Artists. All right. So moving on. All right. So as we said, this company would allow the artists to make and produce their own films and work on the distribution themselves instead of the investors. So as we said, this new studio would allow the stars to make and produce their own films, work on the distribution, and that's a reputation that United Artists kept all the way up till today. Mm-hmm. What 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 little they're still around. Yeah, we'll, we'll get to that, but yeah. spoiler alert. Uh, and then they did bring in other professionals with them, uh, people such as Willem Mekadu, who was a former secretary of the Treasury and became their lawyer and advisor, as well as Joe Schenck. And they brought him in in 1924. He became the first president of United Artists. And Joe Shank, he was married to an actor. He had actor-in-laws. And he owned it. <laughs> I like actor-in-laws. Actor-in-laws. Uh, <laughs> and he owned an independent film company. And so he brought in industry know-how that the actors themselves might be lacking. Right. And they brought him in, n- not initially, later on, because they were struggling to fund these movies. They weren't publicly traded. They weren't getting the money they needed. And so they had set a production schedule and they just were not able to meet it. They're cranking out movies way slower than they anticipated, which meant they were bringing in revenue way slower than anticipated. Yeah. As it turns out, you know, paying for a a film is a big endeavor. 
And securing that finance is tricky. You have to go to backers and try and get that money. Mm-hmm. And um, and while the artists were quite good at creating the actual art, financing it was another matter. So it did definitely help to bring in other people who had experience in that realm to, yeah. to help guide the ship. So Joe not only worked for United Artists, but he also started 20th Century Pictures in 1933. And 20th Century Pictures provided half of the films that UA was going to be releasing. Yeah. And this would eventually merge with Fox to become 20th Century Fox. Yes. Which, spoiler alert, now is owned by Disney. Yes. And he also worked with Mary Pickford and Charlie Chaplin to start their own theater chain, United Artists. Mm-hmm. Uh, and while it does share a name with the studio, it was a separate entity. It's still a separate entity, although I think it belongs to another theater chain now. Well, and and this would be something that would become a necessity later on when the United States government would break up the major movie studios. They, they had kind of a stranglehold mm-hmm. because they owned the means of production, distribution, and everything in between because uh, the movie studios were, were not just making movies, but they owned the movie theaters which meant they could dictate what goes into those movie theaters and what isn't. Yep. So they could make sure their their competitors' films aren't being shown in their own movie theater chains. Yeah, and Charlie Chaplin was actually one of the people who worked with the U.S. government to get this passed. Yeah, so we'll, we'll cover it again a little bit later, but this was uh, giving you a hint of what the early days, once, once you get past that Wild West section, then you're getting into the era of the studios that are kind of taking form like they're they're through mergers and acquisitions growing bigger and bigger and bigger mm-hmm. and more and more influential in the film industry and that made united artists even more important for people who wanted to be able to bypass all that yeah yeah now joe shank did leave united artists in 1935 because he wanted an ownership share and they wouldn't give it to him mm-hmm. yep so then you had a lot of other folks kind of passing in and out of United Artists to help them, you know, produce films and distribute films. Samuel Goldwyn, who would become part of a, a MGM. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's, it's his, his his last name is the G in yeah. MGM. Um, Buster Keaton, who uh, I'm sure had lots of fun things to say to Charlie Chaplin. Uh, Gloria Swanson, Howard Hughes. These are all people who were involved with United Artists at one time or another. Yeah, now... All of these people came in and out, but Mary Pickford stayed. She stayed with the company into the 1950s. She retired from acting in the 30s and moved to producing at that time, which is good because it was also in the 1930s that the studio finally became profitable. Mm -hmm. And by the mid-30s, they were making more than a million dollars a year, but it wasn't super stable. Yeah. uh, The history of United Artists has a lot of ups and downs until you get to the late 70s, early 80s, in which case it was more downs than ups. Yeah. Uh, but by the 1940s, they were once again encountering some financial issues. The original partners had pretty much all jumped ship with the exception of Mary Pickford, and they had sold off their shares in the company. Uh, some of the studio's producers were looking at a way of trying to to get to keep the company going by offering up a plan for a 10-year turnaround, but um, it would mean that half of the ownership of the company would go to these people. If they were successful. If they were successful. Yeah. So, you know, that's a that's one of those deals where it, it it's hard if you're on the other end of it, right? Where you're mm-hmm. saying, 
listen, I think I can help you save your business. But in return, if I save your business, you got to give me half of it. But they took that deal. And that meant at this point, they were just doing financing and distribution. Uh, they didn't actually have a studio. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so they were they were providing the money for a production, and mm-hmm. they were then taking the finished films and handling the part of getting that yeah. to theaters. But they weren't actually rolling film. But they were still supporting those independent artist projects. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they also didn't have their own theaters for distribution. So it, it was risky business. Uh, but they were creating 20 films a year at that point, and they had a domestic gross over $10 million, So not not – too bad in the growth department. Yeah, and this is also right around the time uh, 1948 would be when the U.S. Supreme Court made the decision that would break up the movie studios so that they couldn't own both movie theater chains and production studios. They were already also trying to move into a burgeoning television industry. Yeah. And that was really what triggered a lot of uh, resistance against the movie studios. It was essentially saying you're trying to control all of entertainment. That. Uh, and again, we've already mentioned Disney once, but to me, it feels like that's kind of what Disney's doing right now. Yeah. And I say this, I love Disney, but yeah, it they they own a lot of everything. Yeah. Um, so United Artists did release a bunch of really good movies, uh, as a, along with a couple of super popular franchises like James Bond and The Pink Panther, which I guess nowadays Pink Panther isn't so big, but it was big to me. Yeah, so... Uh, both James Bond has obviously that that franchise has lasted for quite some time. Although its its association with UA is is now tenuous at best. Yeah. Uh, the Pink Panther series was really popular when it first came out. You had a shot in the dark. You had the other Pink Panther movies, and then uh, with Peter Sellers, and then later on you had the one terrible Roberto Benigni <laughs> son of Pink Panther movie that came out in the nineties, uh, which I. Don't recommend anyone ever watch. And then you had the Steve Martin Pink Panther movies where it was the attempt to revive the franchise. Yeah. I, I mean, in my opinion, the originals were best. But. Yeah, I'm listen, I love Steve Martin, but Peter Sellers is hard to live yeah. up to. Yeah. Uh, but but still, these were franchises that were quite successful. And, uh, you know, they definitely helped United Artists in, in that they were they were reliably bringing in money. Yes, and at a time when the rest of the movie industry was struggling Mm -hmm. throughout the 50s and the 60s. uh, In 1957, United Artists took the company public with $17 million in stock. They also started a music company spinoff and expanded into TV shows. Yeah, which is what all the other studios were doing too. And in fact, United Artists would be involved in TV on and off, although we're really going to focus Almost exclusively side. on the movie side, yeah, because yeah. otherwise this would just get so – it's going to be complicated already. <laughs> it's, it would be more I, so with TV. I'd say it already is yeah. complicated. So 1967, uh, there's a change in ownership of United Artists. Yes. Like, like it, there had already been that kind of thing where the original stakeholders had sort of sold off their shares and gotten out anyway. So you could argue, argue that United Artists was not aptly named anymore. But now it really changed. Yeah. So they were doing well enough that Trans-American Corporation said, hey, we want to buy you. Mm-hmm. And they did. Yep. And they, in 1970, they had a loss of about $35 million. But overall, they still did pretty well through the 70s. They released a whole bunch of movies that won awards and mm-hmm. TV that got nominated for awards and mm-hmm. things like that. So uh, everything seemed to be going great. 
Until you get to the tail end of the 1970s. True. Because that's when you started seeing some some brouhaha going on behind the scenes over at United Artists, including some discussions about some of the more uh, lascivious fare. Yeah, they were releasing some movies that were X-rated. Now now they've been dropped down to Mm R-rated, at least some of them. But... Trans-American Corporation didn't like that. They didn't want this edgy media associated with their name, so they'd actually take their name off the movie posters mm-hmm. for them. And they just couldn't come to agreements on that and a bunch of administrative issues. And a bunch of the top executives left United Artists and formed their own studio, Orion Pictures. And a bunch of other artists in the industry actually wrote public letters about this saying, Holy goodness, what's going to happen? Yeah, so this also is one of those those common stories we see in Hollywood and in business in general where you get some high-level executives who are disenchanted with the way things are going and, and they say, that's it, I'm taking my ball and I'm going to go make my own sport Yes, over here. And that was the <laughs> case. So this was shaky ground here. United Artists was now in the in the late 70s in an uncertain place, and then they decided to back a film that had, at least from the surface, sounded like it had everything going for Mm -hmm. it. And this is where we get to Heaven's Gate, the Western. But we'll talk more about that right after this quick break. AI might be the most important new computer technology ever. It's storming every industry, and literally billions of dollars are being invested. So buckle up. The problem is that AI needs a lot of speed and processing power. So how do you compete without costs spiraling out of control? It's time to upgrade to the next generation of the cloud. Oracle Cloud Infrastructure, or OCI. OCI is a single platform for your infrastructure, database, application development, and AI needs. OCI has four to eight times the bandwidth of other clouds, offers one consistent price instead of variable regional pricing, and of course, nobody does data better than Oracle. So now you can train your AI models at twice the speed and less than half the cost of other clouds. If you want to do more and spend less like Uber, 8x8, and Databricks Mosaic, take a free test drive of OCI at oracle.com strategic. That's oracle.com strategic. oracle.com strategic. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. 
Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P.com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My name is Ariel. I moved to the U.S. at 19. I spoke no English and I struggled finding job opportunities. Everything I have, I owe to the Adult Literacy Center and getting my high school diploma at age 22. It was an honor helping you achieve your greatness. Now you're helping others achieve theirs. It inspires me. When you graduate, they graduate. Find free and supportive adult education centers near you at finishyourdiploma.org. Brought to you by Dollar General Literacy Foundation and the Ad Council. All right, so Ariel, uh, I'm, I'm sitting there. I'm looking at this pitch. It's going to be a Western. It's going to star people like uh, uh, Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. Chris Christopherson. Sounds amazing. I mean, it's already pretty phenomenal, right? Yeah. On top of that, you have tagged director Michael Cimino to be the director of this film. And Cimino was coming off massive critical success with The Deer Hunter. Yes, which is, I hate to say, a movie I haven't watched. Well, I mean, I don't think of you as an aficionado of Vietnam films. No. But The Deer Hunter is phenomenal. And so, Here's Chimino. He's fresh off this directorial triumph. Yeah. You've got these these stars that are in line. You've got this plan for this grand Western that is going to, in theory, be the defining uh, entry in that genre for the 1970s. Yeah. And, you know, you figure, well, let's give Chimino all the the artistic freedom to do what he needs to do to make this movie yeah. work. We're what could uni- go wrong? We're United Artists. That's what we do. Yeah. <laughs> so the film had a budget of seven and a half million dollars. Now, keep in mind, this is 1970s. Like, this is before the era of the mega blockbusters where you had people sinking in hundreds of millions of dollars in a film. That being said, $7.5 million was a modest budget. Most films around that time averaged at $12.5 million. Yeah, and uh, don't worry about Heaven's Gate, though, because they exceeded that budget by quite a bit. Yes, they hit astronomical heights. For the 1970s. Of uh, somewhere between 36 and $44 million. Yeah, uh, accounting in the world of Hollywood is super flexible and it's hard to ever get a full amount from anything. Mm-hmm. But yes, they they clearly went ridiculously over budget. Not only over a budget, but it took a little bit longer than they had thought. Yeah, it took almost two years to make this film. Uh, to give an example of how long it took, within two weeks of filming, Chimino was already two weeks behind schedule. And according to the documentary Final Cut, uh, which is voiced by Willem Dafoe, uh, after those two weeks, he had two hours of film and he only approved three minutes of it. Mm. And this was an hours-long movie. This was a four-hour-long movie when he was done. So do that math. And this meant that each minute of film was costing about a million dollars. Yikes. You know what's also yikes? What? I said Christopher Walken, not Willem Dafoe earlier. Oh, shit. But that's shoot. me. That's me. Yeah, no, no. Willem Dafoe, not Christopher Walken. Two different people. That's John Jonathan. Anyway, much of the <laughs> criticism about the film was not directed at the quality of the movie because no one had yet even seen it. Yeah, some people nowadays say it's, it's not so bad. And well, there's some people who say it's genuinely like a, an artistic masterpiece. Mm-hmm. 
But at the time, there were critics who were ready to write it off entirely simply because of the the stories, the behind-the-scenes stories, the fact that it was known as going ridiculously over budget and mm-hmm. taking way longer to complete than what had been anticipated. There were stories about how uh, Joanne Corelli, who was the producer on the film, had essentially turned a blind eye to Chimino. And in no small part, there were a lot of allegations that the reason she did that was because the two of them were also in a relationship together. So the idea that the money person and the director are are romantically linked means that there's potentially a conflict of interests there and that Corelli was not going to ever side with the movie studio. So you had kind of a poison pill for mm-hmm. United Artists. Mm-hmm. There was this this film that already had a reputation for being uh, a big anchor. You know, it's, it cost way too much. The The stories about Chimino, like, demanding take after take after take made yeah. him sound like Stanley Kubrick. This, this movie was getting panned before it even released. Yeah, and before anyone had even had a chance to see it. So yeah. there was no chance for Heaven's Gate. And here's the problem is that United Artists had put an awful lot into that film. Yes, a whole lot of money. Uh, and it only ended up making $3.4 million in the U.S. box office. Yeah, so not even making back its original budget, let yeah. alone its final budget. A tenth of the cost it took to make it or so. Yeah. Uh, eventually, the movie did get cut down to 149 minutes, I will, I will say. Yeah, from four hours to a little more than two hours. Yes, which is better. Well, it, it's not quite half as long or a little more than half as long, rather. Yeah, but but some people say that made the plot a bit convoluted. Yeah, yeah so, you got to cut out entire subplots. Yeah, so all of this essentially— You, you replace Willem Dafoe with Christopher Walken. Uh, no, I would watch that. I mean, it, it happened in my brain. <laughs> Anyhow, all of this pretty much bankrupted the United Artists Studio, and yes. I don't— I don't mean Transamerica because Transamerica actually was able to write off the cost. But they were done with that division of their company between the issues they had had priority that caused the executives to change out. Yeah. And then this horrible flop and failure of revenue. Yeah. So the parent company is now saying, you know what? We don't want to deal with this anymore. It's more trouble than what it's worth. So they say, let's look for a buyer. And they found one. Yeah, MGM, who bought United Artists in 1981. Mm-hmm. Uh, but but it really wasn't much of a company at this point. Like a lot, like all those executives that already left. A lot mm-hmm. of the the um, the fallout from Heaven's Gate meant that there wasn't much left of United Artists other than the brand. Yeah. So you could argue that what MGM was buying was the prestige of the brand itself, which was related to these you know, films and franchises that had come out previously. Uh, MGM's history, by the way, we'll have to do a whole episode about them at some point. Yeah. Because that's also wackadoodle crazy. We'll get into a little bit of it. A lot of these studios have wackadoodle crazy histories. Yeah. Um, So in 1983, United Artists and MGM merged to create the MGM United Artists Entertainment Group. And that meant in the 80s, they were... Literally synonymous. Yes, it was MGM UA. Yes. It was, uh, that was the, the name of the company. Now, we're going to rush through this as much as I can because what follows is some crazy maneuvers of ownership. So 
Kirk Kirkorian was the owner of MGM UA. Uh, actually, he had been owner of MGM a couple of times at this point. He sells uh, UA and MGM both to, to Ted Turner in 1986. And Turner mostly wanted the library of films that MGM had, like, like you know, Wizard of Oz, mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. And so then Ted Turner immediately turns around and sells UA as a subsidiary back to Kirkorian. So MGM is now owned by Turner. UA is owned by Kirkorian. They are technically two separate companies for all of about three months. Because uh, after that, Turner, because he was accruing debt very rapidly, Mm -hmm. had to answer to boards of directors who were very unhappy with the way Turner was making these acquisitions. They were worried about him being able to make a return on investment. So he was essentially pressured into selling MGM back. And uh, he had to sell it to somebody. And the somebody he sold it to was United Artists, headed by Kirkorian. So MGM had bought UA. Then UA Mm -hmm. bought MGM. And they essentially just reunited again after just a few months in 1986. Uh, Then it became MGM UA Communications Company. And MGM and UA were each used to brand different films. So while one studio was producing all these different movies, one name or the other would be associated with the films. And I don't know that there was any rhyme or reason as to which ones got what. Yeah, they struggled all through the 80s. This is even though they made they released Rain Man in 88 and Raid Man was very popular. Yeah, it was a it was a Academy Award winning. Yeah. Yeah. But they still struggled. And that wasn't the last of it. No, okay, so we're going to keep on going through. I'm going to really power through. We got a guy named Giancarlo Peretti, who he really wanted to buy a uh, a French movie studio, but ended up being told no. Uh, that was after he had already arranged to buy MGM UA from Kirkorian. He got financial backing from a company called Credit Lyonnais, but Peretti was not the most up and up uh, no. transparent, law-abiding businessman. <laughs> no, he was not. And so he was immediately uh, put under investigation for numerous uh, alleged crimes, uh, mostly like things like, you know, fraud. And and it was all, all like white-collar type stuff. So he's not able to pay the loan payments to Credit Lyonnais. So Credit Lyonnais takes possession of MGM UA. And uh, at that point... The owners, uh, Credit Lyonnais, they drop UA from the name and they turn it to Metro Goldwyn Meyer. So it's no longer just MGM. Yeah, it sounds like when your parent is mad at you. Get down here right now, Metro Goldwyn Meyer. Yeah. Uh, and then they started bringing back you know, James, James Bond, Bond and Pink Panther, and Pink yeah. Panther movies. And then we get into even more crazy shenanigans with the ownership. So Credit Lyonnais hands off MGM and UA to the Consortium de Realisation. God bless you. Merci beaucoup. Uh, They went on in 1996 to sell MGM UA. And who did they sell it to? Kirk Kerkorian. Yes, the guy who had owned it twice before. So this was the third time that Kirk Kerkorian would own MGM and UA. Uh, The first time was 1969. That was just MGM because UA was not part of it back then. Mm -hmm. Then in 1986, when he bought it, uh, MGM and UA back from Ted Turner, and now again. And then Kirkorian turns around and sells the company again in 2004 to some hedge fund managers who were working with Sony and Comcast. 
ostensibly to bring the MGM library of films over to Sony for the purposes of putting them on the brand new media format known as Blu-ray. It's like a boomerang. He keeps throwing it away and it keeps coming back to him. Well, And also, uh, so Kirkorian is someone we should do an episode on at some point because he at one point referred to MGM as no longer being a film producing studio, but rather a a uh, a brand name for resort hotels like the MGM yeah, at, in Las Vegas. Yeah. yeah. Or so, Maryland. So this thing that used to be known as one of the powerhouse movie studios is now known as it's a it's a resort. It, it just blows my mind. Yeah. But yeah. Uh, so all this time, UA is still trying to put out these kind of artist driven. Yeah. Films. Yeah. They're still producing little bits of things, even though they're being traded around like a ping pong ball. Mm-hmm. Uh and later on, a lot of their films would actually go to Sony Pictures instead. Yeah, yeah. So films that UA were, were producing, because this group of hedge fund managers working with Sony got hold of it, um, the Sony Pictures logo would appear on it rather than the United Artists logo. Yeah, but the company wasn't completely dead. No, you know, I, I had written that it, uh, while it may look at, at from the outside that MGM was really most sincerely dead, to quote, to quote Wizard of Oz. Yeah, it was only mostly dead. Uh, in 2006, Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner were giving control over the movies that UA was making. And we will talk about that experiment more after we come back from this quick break. This podcast is sponsored by Ramp. Are you the decision maker in your company? Consider this. For the first time in decades, there's a better option for a corporate card and spend management platform. Meet Ramp, the only corporate card and spend management system designed to help you spend less money so you can make more. Most corporate credit cards offer points as incentives, but those points amount to less than their worth in real cash value. Ramp's business cards offer you cash back, real money in your pocket. Plus, you control who spends what with each vendor. And Ramp's software collects and verifies receipts automatically, which means you'll stop wasteful spending and close your books in hours instead of days. Businesses that use Ramp add up to 5% to their bottom line the first year. If you're a decision maker, adding Ramp could be one of the best decisions you've ever made. And now get $250 when you join Ramp for free. Just go to ramp.com slash easy. Ramp.com slash easy. R-A-M-P dot com slash easy. Currents issued by Sutton Bank and Celtic Bank members of DIC terms and conditions apply. My simple solution to the problem was remove people from the scene and help them feel safer. In response to attacks against Asian Americans, Maddie Park raised over $250,000 to donate cab rides to the Asian community. There is so much more work to be done. We really need to come together and tackle this issue as a community. Support the Asian community. Learn how at lovehasnolabels.com. Brought to you by Love Has No Labels and the Ad Council. It's The Breakfast Club, the world's most dangerous morning show. Hey! Angela Yee is kind of like the big sister that always pokes you in the forehead. <laughs> Ooh. That's not how it goes? That's not how anything goes. Yimby's really like a robot. One of the best DJs ever. Believe that. Charlamagne is the wild card. And I'm about to give somebody the credit they deserve for being stupid. I know, that's right. <laughs> what is wrong with you? Oh. Listen to The Breakfast Club weekday mornings from 6 to 10 on 106.7 The Beat. Columbus is real hip-hop and R&B. All right, so Tom Cruise and Paula Wagner were fresh off of a relationship with Paramount Pictures. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they had kind of actually been kicked out of the process. Yeah, they, their 
Their contract was coming to an end anyway, but Sumner Redstone, who was the chairman of the parent company of Paramount, mm-hmm. which was Viacom, Viacom. Uh, had some pretty public and nasty things, or at least nasty implications about the whole thing. Uh, didn't seem to be like like essentially like we wish you best the yeah. best on your endeavors. Yeah, yeah. Like don't let the door hit you on the way out. Yeah. So they struck a deal with MGM mm-hmm. where they got thirty percent ownership in the United Artists names, and Paula Wagner became the CEO, mm-hmm. and Tom Cruise became a producer and you know sometimes star because it's Tom Cruise in the films. Um, but it much like United Artists in the beginning, it didn't restrict him to just doing United Artists films. Yes, he would be allowed to continue to appear in movies from other studios he, while uh, while also heading up the slate for United Artists. Yeah, so this allowed them to bring United Artists back to its original goal. It was a revitalization of their original mission statement, basically. Yeah, so essentially you could argue that this really was a new United Artists, that, that the United Artists of 1919 had – pretty much died at the end of the mm-hmm. 70s and early 80s and that the this was the revitalization of that the resurrection reincarnation of yeah <laughs> reincarnation's a good word too um although resurrection also it, works a, a pale imitation might also be the right yeah. thing to say yeah so Cruz and Wagner were allowed to develop a slate of four films a year up yep. to uh but they had to fall in with a certain within a certain budget. So yeah, it was it was I, the idea was that they had to be mid range budget films. You couldn't yeah. do super big budget movies. You couldn't probably do super low budget either. No, no, they wanted something that would be kind of middle of the road as far as the budget goes. Which is middle of the road between what big studios wanted at the beginning of our story and what United Artists wanted. So it seems like it seems at face value like a good. A good middle ground. Yeah. Um, but things didn't start off so well. And the problem with starting off this new version of UA was that public perception was going to play a big part in how well it would do. Yeah. The first film that was produced under this UA label was called Lions for Lambs. And I had never heard of this movie before we did this. And I was like, I, I was watching movies, and I was generally aware of movies at this time. I also hadn't, which is incredible because it had Robert Redford and Tom Cruise and Meryl Streep in it. Yeah, and Robert Redford directed it, and it was yeah. it was a series of three different stories that kind of were, to some extent, interwoven. So an anthology. You know, kind of like the idea being there's three connected stories, but a lot of the critics said that the connective tissue between the three was kind of forced and didn't really work. Mm. So there were a, there were a lot of uh, film critics who had criticisms about the movie and just said it's just – not that it was terrible, just that it wasn't very good. Well, as difficult as it is to for us to explain this movie, it was just as difficult for MGM to market it. Yeah. So it just did not do well. No, it didn't. It was uh, it was kind of a failure at the box office. It didn't do great with the critics. Uh, it was originally thought of as going to be like this is going to be Oscar bait. Like this is the mm-hmm. film that's made for that sort of thing, and it didn't it didn't pan out that way. But while it was still in post production, uh, before the movie had come out, before this reaction had happened. United Artists was already at work on another film that would also have Tom Cruise in it. That I have heard of, Valkyrie. Yeah, no, I remember when that movie came out, I did not see it. Valkyrie is, uh, it's a story about the attempted assassination of Adolf Hitler. Yes. uh, The famous briefcase bomb. And this one had a bigger budget. It was a $75 million movie. Yeah, this was actually a higher budget film than what 
had originally been planned for United Artists. Sounds a little bit like Heaven's Gate. Yeah. So uh, there were stories about it being a troubled production. Like Heaven's Gate. The release date for the movie kept jumping around. Like Heaven's Gate. Although in this case, the release date (laughs) Wasn't always being pushed back. Sometimes it got moved Move forward. forward. Yeah, like it was. It was essentially the message that was being sent. If you were paying attention to the industry, was that they had no idea what to do with this movie. Uh, the, again, it was. It was a, supposed to be this very important film, very dramatic film. Um, now, when it came out, it actually did turn a profit. Like this isn't. This was not. A, a, a flop. A box office flop. No, no, but UA was having other problems. So Paula Wagner left in 2008, in August of 2008, mm-hmm. and became an independent producer. And stories started coming out that she had encountered resistance at MGM and that MGM basically wanted to put more money towards their productions as opposed to UA's Yeah, there were, there were new studio heads over at MGM and that they were more interested in funding MGM productions and not uh, helping out UA. Yeah. And then at the same time, the Writers Guild of America strike happened, mm-hmm. which gave problems to UA. And I'd say all of the film industry, it was a writer's strike. And the only people working during that time were really scabs. Yeah. UA did get a waiver from the Writers Guild of America at one point that kind of helped things a bit. But it was still a pretty rough time. Uh, in 2011, MGM would bring back full control of the UA banner. Like, no longer would you have Tom Cruise coming up with this slate. Yeah. MGM said, like, this hasn't worked. This was a failed experiment. It's a lovely idea, but no. And so the name has been used on a few films that mm-hmm. were coming from MGM slash UA, but you could argue now that UA is really just a brand name. Like, if you wanted to brand a film as being a United Artists film to kind of suggest that this is a more arty production. Mm-hmm. It's it's almost like you're using the brand name to telegraph to the audience, this is the type of movie that, that you're, you're going to see. see. Yeah, yeah. Now, that being said, because the name is still out there, in February 2019, United Artists hit its 100th birthday. That's why I opened up with 100 years ago. Oh, you did. Yeah, yeah. Um, also, like, they've had a history with one of the other companies that we've talked about on this podcast. Disney. They yep. used to handle their shorts. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I've handled a lot of Disney shorts, too. <laughs> also. It's hot in Florida. Fun fact about Heaven's Gate. Uh, the press called it Apocalypse Later. Instead of Apocalypse Now. Now, which Cute. was another UA movie that actually had production issues because of Heaven's Gate, because they were in the middle of making that movie when Heaven's Gate was released. Uh, Ebert. Roger Ebert said that Heaven's Gate was, quote, the most scandalous cinematic waste I've ever seen, unquote. Wow. That's a, that's a heck of a thing to say. It is. Because when you look at some of the wastes I've seen <laughs> in cinematic history. Um, but I've you know what? I have never watched Heaven's Gate, and now I'm very curious to see it. Yeah, I might go home and do that. But but you, if you research that film, you will see stories about how, like, there'd be a series of takes, and they would they – would, you know, Chimino would run people through 40 different takes of a seemingly yeah. simple sequence because it wasn't right. Or he would force the entire production to wait hours to, so that the light would be just right yeah. to get a shot. You can actually go watch the Final Cut documentary all about Heaven's Get on YouTube uh, with people involved in the production mm-hmm. talking about it. Yeah, so that that's something that I'll probably have to check out after we're done here. But yes, it was – 
you could argue that Heaven's Gate was really the the nail in the coffin, but honestly, United Artists had a pretty tough struggle throughout its entire run. Like there were mm-hmm. there were sequences where they were putting out critically acclaimed films and they were doing well at the box office, but those were in between long stretches of turmoil. Yeah. Um, but the industry is fickle. Yeah, the there's indus- no business like it. No there's business no business like show business. Yeah. yeah. So um, interesting story. We'll see if United Artists has another revitalization. Yeah, if that five ever, or ten years down the line, if it emerges beyond a brand name. Like, it, I'll tell you another company this reminded me of in many ways. Uh, it reminded me a lot of Atari. Yes, because Atari was a company that became a a giant name in its industry. And today is not much more than a brand name. Yeah. Um, But that's a story that we will tell in some future episode of The Brink. Maybe it will be one requested by one of you out there in listener land. Yes, which we've been getting those requests in. Thank you so much. And if you do have a topic you'd like us to do a show about or requests, you know, you want to know our favorite colors or whatever, you can email us at feedback at thebrinkpodcast.show. Yes, and you can go to thebrinkpodcast.show on your web browser of choice to learn more about your beloved hosts and to look at the archive of all the episodes we put out so far. So that way, if you do have an idea or a topic, you can check and make sure we haven't done it already. Mm-hmm. But the show is still pretty young, and so a good chance we haven't done it yet. So send those requests in. Please. And until next time, I have been Jonathan Strickland. And I've been Ariel Kasten. Business on the Brink is a production of iHeartRadio and How Stuff Works. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Check the back seat. Check the back seat. All right, come here. Check the back seat. Gets in your head, right? Good. Because every year, dozens of children are forgotten in the backseat of a car by a parent or caregiver. All never thought it could happen to them. But with changes in routines, distractions, or a sleeping child, it can happen to anyone. Parked cars get hot fast and can be deadly. So get it in your head. Check the back seat. A message from NHTSA and the Ad Council. Hey, it's Zuko and Kayla from The Wake Up Call. Enjoy your podcast, but when you're done, don't forget about us. We have a radio show. We try to bring a smile to your face every morning. We also talk to some of the hottest country stars of today, and we like to share some good news with That's What I Like. Because Lord knows that's hard to find. When you're done podcasting your podcast, listen to us at 92.3 WCOL. Set your preset on your radio right now, and don't forget you can listen to us online on the iHeartRadio app.